Well, good morning, Sunrise. Welcome to church this morning. My name is Dan. I'm the worship pastor here and excited to worship with you and sing with you. I want you guys to go ahead and stand as we sing, as we prepare our hearts to worship God. Um, so today, when we open our mouths, when we sing these songs, we're declaring that with confidence that God is with us and He goes before us to fight our battles. And no matter what we're going through or what we're facing today, we know that He is always there. He is the lion that roars and also the lamb that comforts. So let's sing. Let's worship this God today. hearts declare his praise but who can stop the lord almighty it's our god is the lion the lion of judah he's roaring with power and fighting our battles and every knee will bow before him it's our god is the lamb the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before Him. Yes, amen. So open up the gates. So open up the gates. Make way before the King of Kings. For God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? It's our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battle. the Lord Almighty Who can stop the Lord Almighty Who can stop the Lord Almighty No one Who can stop the Lord is fighting our battles Oh, who can stop the Lord Almighty yeah. Who can stop 
came and lived and my house was built on you and I'm safe
caretaker, but you are also our majestic, glorious King. We can run to you when we are hurting. We must also remember to surrender to your authority in our lives. 
You are our king that we worship today. Our king forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can take your seat. Good morning, sunrise. Good morning. Good morning to you that are here in the sanctuary and to those of you who are watching us online. Welcome. My name is Debbie Osinski. I'm one of the elders here at Sunrise Church. And just happy to have you here. If you're new and visiting us today, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. No obligation. Just uh, like to know your name. And we have a little gift for you. So if you'd go back to the connect table in the lobby, uh, someone will meet you there and um, have you fill out a little form and then give you a free gift. So we'd love to have you do that. Got a lot of announcements today, so I'm going to get straight to them. Um, we have a, those, oh, those announcements are on the QR code on the back of your chairs. I have no idea how you use that, but anyway, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you guys figure it out. <laughs> um, anyway, we're having a, but you can listen to me instead. We're having a partnership class uh, next week, Sunday, November 13, and this is a chance to learn more about Sunrise, meet some of the staff, and answer any questions, and kind of what it means to be a partner. So if you're interested in that, then you can email dan at sunrisemin.org. Yep. And uh, he can get you some information and get you signed up. There's going to be lunch provided as well as child care. So if you could give Dan a little heads up that you're interested so we can kind of plan on how many people and how much lunch we need to have. Um, Also, on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I think that's two weeks, November 20. We'll be having a thankful service during our normal service time. And this will be a brunch potluck. We've done this a few years ago, and we had to kind of amend that during uh, COVID. But thankfully, we can do this again. And so the churches can provide pancakes and beverages. And then we're asking each of you to bring some of the sides, which are apparently on the list behind me. So look for your last name. Um, And then that's the side we need you to bring. We talked about having mimosas in the corner, but we're not going to do that. So maybe another time. Um, There's also Advent bags. Uh, We're going to provide Advent bags for families as we approach the Christmas uh, Advent season. These are a great great way for families to interact with their kids and maybe your grandkids. So uh, you can sign up on the announcement page if you can use that QR code or, um, or in an email that apparently went out this morning. Okay. And then finally, we have the Thanksgiving food drive going on. Um, You've probably seen the bags of food back there. We're partnering with one of our local missions, which is um, Love in the Name of, Love Your Neighbor, it used to be Love, Inc., um, which they serve the Jenison and Hudsonville and Granville area. Um, There are lists of food items, they look like this, that are needed that you could pick up uh, at the grocery store. And then uh, next Sunday's our last day to collect those. So we would love to have you participate in that. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had Dr. Rochelle White here from Kuiper College. And she, was, she gave a message about blessed to be a blessing. And that really stuck with me. And I hope it stuck with you. She asked a lot of us to stand up um, if God has blessed you. And she said, uh, and many of us did, I think everyone did. And so we are blessed to be a blessing. She said, God is too good for us not to serve him. So let's be a blessing to someone else. So this Thanksgiving food drive, not to guilt you into it all, but um, it would be a good opportunity for you to do that. All right, so that's it for announcements. Here we get three minutes to dismiss the kiddos to their classes and get to say and greet one another. So 
Welcome. Good morning. All right, if you could make your way back to your seats, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. So as, as you are well aware, uh, I never lack for something to say, but I will say this. Uh, last week was kind of like drinking out of a fire hose, and I promise I won't do that to you very often. Uh, but it's important because over the next few weeks, the past couple of weeks and over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to be building scaffolding from with which I hope to work over the next decade or so as we discover together what it means to be biblical, what it means to be people who follow Jesus and do what is known according to His revealed will. And today, as I warned you last week, which is probably why some folks aren't here, um, that we were going to do the other 52 books of the Bible. Now, no worries. What we're going to do is we're just going to sort of sketch out sort of an outline about how uh, the Scriptures that don't make up the narrative, right, those 14 books, those six words that tell the story, how they inform and essentially pull along the inspired revelation that God has given us. So why do we care about all 66 books of the Scriptures? Well, because as we said two weeks ago, they are God-breathed. And as such, are as distinct from other pieces of literature as humans are from other animals. And the 52, even though they don't tell the story, they inform the story, propelling it on a redemptive trajectory that changes the world within which God's people live. They tell us and they show us, they reveal to us God's will and God's purposes for His glory and for our good. So here's what I thought we would do today. I thought what we would do today to, to, to begin this discussion is for us to think through some of the crazy laws that are here. And so here's the thing, right? We talked about when you start reading through the Bible, you, you get through Genesis, you get through Exodus, you come to Leviticus and you're like, what is this? And nobody's ever told you that it's ancient case law that's meant for another time and another people and another setting and another language and another culture and all those kinds of things. And so I thought to myself, are there any laws in the books in these here United States that might be strange or odd? And so I did research, and by this I plugged into the Google machine Strange laws. And thanks to our good friends at Olivet Nazarene University. So if you go do your own research after this and find out that some of these laws have been taken off the books, take it up with our good friend, Dr. Linda Havman. Right? It's Linda's fault. Um, because, right, she's responsible for everything that happens at Olivet Nazarene. Um, right? We, we, we live in a land where even some of the laws that are on the books here don't make any sense. For example, in the great state of Alabama, Roll Tide which last night they didn't, and I'm so glad about that. <laughs> Craig, if you're watching this, I love, Craig's the guy I did my doctorate with at Pastors in Alexandria, Alabama. I love you, not Nick Saban so much. Alabama, there's, there is a law on the books that says it is illegal, just so you know, to wear a fake mustache in church that causes laughter. <laughs> fake mustaches, okay. Fake mustaches in church, still Okay. Someone laughs at you for the comedic value of your fake mustache, you're under the jail. In California, did you know that it is illegal to eat a frog 
if that frog dies in a frog jumping contest, <laughs> the, frog is, right, the frog has a heart attack, consume it, right? The frog is roadkill, perfectly okay. The great state of Kentucky, it is illegal to dye a duckling blue and offer that blue duckling for sale unless six more blue ducklings are also for sale at the same time. The great state of Michigan. Ladies, this one's for you. Amy, pay attention. It is illegal for a woman to cut her own hair without her husband's permission. (laughs) Oh, they're turning. You're turning. In North Carolina, it is illegal to use an elephant as it is illegal to use an elephant to plow a cotton field. Bovine of all sorts. Oxen, yes. Buffalo, yes. Not an elephant. In Ohio, this is... I'm so, I'm so sad Joe and Pam aren't here for this. Um, it's illegal to get a fish drunk. How would one do this? South Carolina, it is illegal to keep a horse in a bathtub. Now, I'm assuming if a horse wanders into the bathtub of its own volition, you're okay. And the great state of West Virginia, which I was afraid, folks, I could be honest with you, right? My my people have enough trouble on their own. And I was really worried. I'm like, if this is too weird, I'm not going to read it. But actually, it's not nearly as bad as some of these other laws. It, 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 it It is illegal, though, in my home state to whistle while underwater. I don't, hmm. So here's the funny thing. That, that, that was the, hmm, I'm not, not sure. Okay, so all of these, can they be done? Should they be done? That's kind of the question, right? And, and, and it causes you to wonder, right? We, we, we read some of these things and they're silly and they're humorous and they're funny. But the reality is, folks, at some point in somebody's life, at some time in history, these things made sense for them to be put on the books. Somehow, someway, it made sense for the Kentucky legislature to say, well, that, those two blue ducklings that you've dyed blue, they, they, you can't put them for sale unless you have, I don't know, what, six more? Right? At some point, these things made sense, but they don't make sense to us because they're out of context. You see, that's what legal instruction is, right? Laws are there for human flourishing. Laws aren't there for us to serve them. They're there to serve us. And this is actually the way it should be, and it's always even been in, in the Scriptures themselves, Right? So often we look at some of the laws in the Old Testament and we think, man, why in the world were they there in the first place? Well, they were there to train the people of God in righteousness. Let's, let's go back to our, our, our verse that we've been looking at 
over the last couple of weeks, right? First, or it should be 2 Timothy. Again, I do that. I've done that twice now. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and then this last phrase, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For many of us, we look at two-thirds of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and specifically some of those arcane ancient laws, and we think to ourselves, why in the world are they there? It doesn't make any sense that they're there because they're telling us to do things that seem completely out of whack and completely out of step with our culture. And the only way that they will make sense, the only way that they can train us for righteousness is if we look and we see what they actually meant in their context. And so, so with that, right, this idea that the law is there, the scriptures are there to train us in righteousness. And, and, and in essence, this Greek phrase literally means to discipline us, to discipline people for alignment with God. It is discipline that brings proper alignment, that which brings us, God's people, into alignment with His will and His ways. What good are the Scriptures? Friends, they're good because they, if handled correctly, bring us into alignment with God's will. And who doesn't want to know God's will? But they also show us his ways. How he accommodated himself, entered into time and space to redeem his fallen creatures. All right, let's look at some of the strange laws that are in the Old Testament. Um, And some are even more strange than some that we've we've mentioned here earlier, right? Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 through 36, uh, tells us that in Israel, right, there were laws that regulated the treatment of immigrants and foreigners. Now, 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 that doesn't seem so odd, right? Most civilized countries, we have laws for immigration. We have laws of how we treat one another. But, but this is exactly what it says. It says, do not, be dis- do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. And this is specifically talking about foreigners and immigrants. Use scales and honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. Noah, when inter- interacting with your neighbors, especially those that maybe from aren't here, right, like me, immigrants to West Michigan, do you often use a dishonest ephah or hen? Very, very dishonest, right? And so often, folks, what we do is we look at this and we're like, I don't know what an ephah is, so throw that one out. Yeah, but, but what, what do we need to understand? We need to understand that the Scriptures here, they're calling us toward this idea of treatment, of honest treatment to the people that are around us, even the people, listen to me, folks, that are othered in our world and in our communities. Just because someone doesn't speak our language, just because someone doesn't look like us, just because someone doesn't agree with us, it is not an opportunity for us to treat them as a competitor or someone to be defeated. No, an ephah was essentially a dry measuring tool that was used. And, and, and what the writer here is saying is, listen, don't defraud people, right? It's like the story of the, the old butcher that had a, a lead weight in the end of his tie, and every time he would put a piece of meat up on the scale to, to weigh it, he would put the end of his tie on it, and it would, would add, you know, a, a few ounces to the, to the weight. 
See, this is what's being talked about, but it's being talked about in an ancient context. A hen is a liquid measure, about one, one gallon or so, right? Israel, there were laws to regulate treatment, especially of the other and the outsider. What, what's next? We see another law, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, says that there were laws concerning the treatment um, of and care for the poor and the oppressed, right? Again, not, not uncommon. We, we have laws like that. But, but this is how it read in the text itself. Do not reap the corners of your field and do not go over the vineyard a second time. Check. Dennis, how are you caring for the poor? Well, on my postage size stamp lot, I don't mow the corners of my yard. And Michaela's pepper plant that she propagated and grew in botany, I don't go over it a second time after I pick the peppers. Wait, what's going on here? Why, why, why on earth? Right? And it goes further and says, when you reap the harvest of the land, do not reap the edges of your field and gather the gleanings from the harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or to pick up the grapes that have fallen. Like this, this isn't a law, though, about fields and harvesting or grapes and vineyard. It's really a law about caring for the neighbor and for the indigent. There's a couple more. Real quick, we'll, just, we'll, we'll go through these. Um, Leviticus chapter, chapter 25, 3 through 7, and then Deuteronomy 25 as well, basically uh, tells us that there were laws concerning the utilization of personal resources. Um, and, and this was seen in the fact that you were to give the land to rest every seven years. Every seventh year, you, you weren't to, to plant. You were to kind of let the land rest and resettle. There, there were laws that talked about allowing an ox to eat while it was working. It was a common practice in, in the ancient Near East often to muzzle an ox while it was, was, was uh, uh, bringing the, the, the grist mill around and, 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 and crushing out all the grain. And, and what Moses was saying, what the law was saying, is to actually keep an ox from eating while it's working is to sin against the ox. The Apostle Paul actually applies this to, to those who labor in the um, uh, work of preaching and teaching. Right? But why on earth? How does it apply to us to not muzzle our ox or to give the land a rest? Furthermore, along these lines, right, there were laws um, that mitigated systemic and generational poverty. This was the, the, the law of the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years the community of Israel in Leviticus chapter 25 is given a hard reset. And so everyone goes back to the land, reverts back to the people that were originally inheriting it. Right Again, because there weren't personal loans, there, there weren't things like that. So often when someone would find themselves sort of upside down or in great need, they would sell off their family property or they would even sell themselves into slavery. And what the law was saying here is that every 50 years, all these things revert back. Why? Because systemic and generational poverty, they weren't to be a thing in the kingdom of God. And then next, there were laws to ensure inheritance and lineage. Right, Deuteronomy chapter 25, this is actually the law. It says, if, a brother, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family, meaning the dead brother's widow must not marry outside the family, but the brother must marry her and provide for her a son. 
Now, folks, I love my sister-in-law, but hard pass. Hard, Kathleen, I love you. Hard pass. And, and she's thinking, right? She's thinking, oh, yeah, for sure, right? What in the world were these, were these laws in the books? And, and, and why were they there, and what do they mean? See, here's the thing, you guys. One of the things that are difficult for us when, when we look at, like, the Levitical Code is we ask ourselves, okay, it's one thing to know what these things say, but then how do they work themselves out in real life? Well, it, it's a good thing that we kind of have a, a, the Bible that tells us this. Because everything that we see, or everything that we've talked about as far as the legal code in Leviticus, was actually played out and applied in the life of a Moabite lady by the name of Ruth. Most of us know Ruth's story. Ruth, she was a woman who was a foreigner. She was outside of the kingdom. She was outside of the, the, the company. And there was a man by the name of Elimelech who had a family. Elimelech, his name literally means God is king. And there was a famine that was on the land. And, and if we pay close attention to the beginning of the book of Ruth, what we see there is that it says, in the time that the judges ruled. And if you'll, you'll remember, the, sort of the, the way of the book of Judges is, is the book of Judges outlines the cycle of sin where the people would fall into sin. God would bring judgment. He would raise up a judge. They would repent. There would be peace in the land. They would again, a new generation would rise up. They would forget, fall into sin. And we believe what we're finding is the book of Ruth is situated in that cycle of sin where more than likely the people have disobeyed. There's a famine that's been on the land. And this man whose name literally means God is king takes his wife, Naomi, the delightful one, and his two sons, I kid you not, the sick one and the ugly one is what those names mean. And they go to Moab, the land of their distant cousins, who trace their line back to Lot. And, and the two boys, sicky and ugly, they find themselves two brides in Moab. Ruth, whose name means, I love this, to satisfy or to satiate. If you listen to a rabbi teach the book of Ruth, they will often say something like, her name means when you're thirsty. She's a long, cool drink. And Orpha, which literally means the back of the neck. So they go away into this land, and right, you guys know the story. So things good for Elimelech, bad for Elimelech. You can say it. Bad, because he dies. Right? And both of his sons die. Now, this puts all three of these ladies in a very unenviable position, right? Especially outside of ancient Israel, because most ancient Near Eastern cultures, folks, didn't have any mechanism aside from those things that we think about when we think, right, the oldest profession, right? It, women were in a very vulnerable spot outside of ancient Israel. And because of this, Naomi, the delightful one, who is now no longer delightful, but when she gets home says, call me bitter because God has been very harsh with me. She decides to go home to Israel. Why? Because the law makes Israel one of the only safe places for a woman like her to, remain, to, to, to maintain her dignity and to make a living for herself. And she and the girls, they, they, they have this, this emotional um, um, 
exchange. And she tells him, no, go back. You know, you're young, Mary and Orpha, who I do believe loves her mother-in-law, hugs her, cries, but goes back to her father's family. But then Ruth does something very interesting. We're going to get to that here in just a second. But, but Ruth makes a declaration. And this is, this is the first thing I think that we, we see of, of how the law really makes a difference. Ruth, in, in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Ruth does this. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. My friends, you see the conversion of Ruth. Ruth, in this declaration, is no longer a Moabitess. She is now an Israelite. She declares her allegiance, not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, to Naomi's people. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. We look at this passage of Scripture and we, we see something I think that's very, very true. And, 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 and the law makes this possible. The first thing that we see is that for, for those of us who claim to follow Christ, for those of us who are kingdom people, the kingdom and kingdom people, for kingdom people, neighbor love was, is, and always will be the clearest demonstration of God's love. It's never been about the law. It's always been about the God who brought you out of Egypt, who gave you the law to show you who he is and what he had for you. So often, friends, I think that we live in a world where it's all about jumping through the hoops and it's all about doing the right things and it's all about behaving in the right way or having the right doctrine. But the reality is what we see here in Ruth, between Ruth and Naomi, was always the clearest foundation. It's not just what Jesus said when he looked at his disciples or the Pharisees and said, there are two things, love God and love your neighbor. And the way you show that you love God is by loving your neighbor. It's always been that way. You see, Ruth makes this declaration, and what is she saying? She's not saying, I love God, but Naomi, I don't have any use for you. No, those two things are interconnected. My friends, this is why Jesus told us that they will know that you are my disciples. Why? Because of your love for one another. It means we keep showing up. It means we keep giving of ourselves. It means we keep caring for people. It means that our declaration to God is demonstrated in the fact that we love our neighbors. Number two, we see here in Ruth chapter two. Um, so they, they get back to Israel. They, they get back there, and, and, right, and things aren't easy, right? But they go back, and Naomi's greeted by family, and, and that's when she has this big exchange. And they're like, oh, it's the delightful one. And she's like, I'm not delightful. Leave me alone. Actually, change my name. Call me bitter. I'm a bitter person because God's taken all this stuff from me, right? right? Like Naomi, De Debbie Downer. Any Saturday Night Live fans? Debbie Downer, right? That's the thing. I'm not talking about you, Debbie. You're delightful, Right? But she gets there and she's like, nah, you know. But, but then it's time to work. Because here, here's the interesting thing. Again, right, what do these laws from Leviticus tell us? They basically tell us in ancient Israel, if you will work, you can eat. 
I think this is really, really important. This is why. Don't go over the vineyard twice. Why? Because there are people that need those grapes that have fallen to the ground. Don't glean the edges of the corners of your field. Why? Because there are people that are destitute that need that in order to survive. And it's not something where you have, right, you have people that, that, that there was a construct to where if Ruth and Naomi would get up in the morning and they would go out and they would do work, then they could make it. And that's what they set out to do. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we see that the scripture says that she, Ruth, got up to glean. She had already been to the field and she had, she had went and just so happened that she went to the field of someone that was a relative of her dead husband and her dead father-in-law. And this field owner relative by the name of Boaz gave orders to the men, let her, Ruth, gather among the sheaves. And do not reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Kingdom people understand that God is the owner of everything and we are stewards of his good gifts. You see, this is what Boaz, I think, understood. Now, okay, let's be honest, right? Boaz is a single guy. There's this beautiful young widow who wanders into town with Naomi, right? I, I, I get this sense that Boaz, this is kind of Boaz's, you know, uh, Joey Tribbiani from Friends. How you doing, right? It's, it's kind of that. <laughs> this is kind of him, you know, hey, baby, here's, a, here's some stalks of Barkley. You're welcome, right? right? Instead of flowers, it's barley. Hello, Right? And so he, he does this, but, 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 but here's the thing. The law tells us this, right? Don't, who are you, God, to tell me what to do with my personal resources? Well, the reality is, Cletus, they're not mine to begin with. They're God's. There is nothing that I have. There is nothing that I own. There is nothing that I possess. God is the owner, and he has given things to me, even my relationships, that I am to steward well in his name, and that's what we see Boaz doing. And even more than this, right? He doesn't do the bare minimum, right? He's telling them, and again, who knows his motivation, right? Men, can I get a witness? Sometimes we do crazy things for beautiful ladies. Okay, all right, that was, come on. Yeah, baby. Yeah! Excellent. So we get to chapter 3, right? We see. So, so, so he does this. Um, and then Ruth comes home and she's like, hey, Naomi, there was this guy. And he gave me this barley. Right? He let me go. Right? He, he told his guys to take care of me and all this kind of stuff. And there, was, there was this really. And, and Naomi immediately. Okay, let's, let's be honest. Moms. It doesn't matter how old your children are, you still go into mom mode from time to time, right? I know this in my own life, right? When I haven't talked to my mother for two or three days, right? She'll call and be like, well, I just wanted to see if you were still alive. <laughs> I'm still alive too, just in case you want to know. <laughs> so Naomi, right? She goes and she's like, oh, wait. Okay, 
there's something really important here. And she, she starts to make the mental connections. And she knows who Boaz is. And she knows where she's been. And she knows the, the legal system. And she knows all these things that are going on. And then she makes this statement in, in Ruth 3, chapter 1. I think that's huge. And it says, one day Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, and this is a quote, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Something that I'm reminded even as I approach 50 years of age from my mother almost on a weekly basis No matter how old your children get, you never stop being a parent. Can I get a witness? And Naomi knows and she realizes she's taken Ruth back. Ruth has made this declaration. She's now a part of the community of Israel. But but Naomi knows something very clear and she knows this. And young parents, this is something that you're going to learn and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be beautiful. Is that there's going to come a day, listen to me. When that little precious face that you are their best friend. I remember Drew was tiny. He was probably maybe weeks old. And Amy looked at me and she said, we're his best friends in the world. And now, 24 and a half years later. But you never stop parenting. You never stop loving. And Naomi is still trying to find a home for her daughter. Why? Because in the kingdom, right, the legal system of Leviticus points us toward this truth. In the kingdom, widows and widowers are not shelved. Orphans are not abandoned. And singles are not alone. Everyone has a home. Everyone has a family. Listen, listen to me. I can't tell you how many times I've had people that have come into my office over these, low these many years, and they've looked at me and they're like, Dennis, I don't have a place anymore. I don't feel like I fit because everything in the church is built and is functioned and is focused on a particular demographic of people. Anybody ever felt that way? But see, this, that's not the way of the kingdom. You see, Ruth looks at Naomi, and, or Naomi looks at Ruth, and she has brought her home. She has given her a place. She's given her a space, and she cares for her daughter, and she knows that her daughter needs to be provided for, and she knows that it's within this kingdom community that Naomi, as a widow, will find meaningful work because in the kingdom, widows and widowers aren't shelved. Can I, can I speak to those of you that have, that have lost a, a partner? You are not done. You're not done. Others may put you on the shelf. God does not put you on the shelf. May I speak to those of you who, who maybe you feel, you feel orphaned or you feel abandoned. That does not define you. There is work still yet left for you to do. You honor your loved one's memory. As you tell their story. As you live well in the moment. Those that, that may find themselves not fitting the stereotypical couple with 2.5 children. Can I just confess that the church has done a terrible job loving our singles? And I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church writ large. And we need to repent of that. One of the things that... Um, I've said for a long time, when, when, when having meaningful conversations with the bonus, what I, what I call the bonus kids, 
my kids' friends who come, come around and they lounge in my house and they eat my food and they basically cost me money and time and energy and things like that. You know, right? You know. You've been there. One of the things that I've said for many years is when we get into these kind of meaningful conversations is that there, there are probably dozens and dozens of young adults wandering around West Michigan that have heard me say, as long as I'm alive and have a roof over my head, you have a home and you have a family. My friends, can I, can I say that's what the world needs? It needs fewer churches that are, that, that are holding up standards of, of doctrinal purity or, or, or some kind of, 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 of relational religious adherence. And, and it needs more people and it needs more spaces. It needs more homes and it needs more gatherings like this where we can declare as long as we're alive and have a roof over our head. You have a home. You have a family. Chapter 4, so Boaz... Boaz and Ruth have this unconventional proposal, and they decide that they are, are going to be married, and Boaz has a couple things he has to do. There's, there's actually somebody that's a little more closely related to Ruth and Naomi, and he has to go in and get permission, and so Boaz goes, and is like, hey, you know, this, this lady over here, right, she's not much of a looker, so I wouldn't even, you know, talk to her, and she's not really a hard worker, and you know, she's kind of looking for a sugar daddy, if you know what I mean, and right, so... I don't know whether that's how it went or not, but Boaz goes, and he goes before the city council, and he gets permission. He's like, yeah, you know, he can can marry her. And and, and then Boaz and Ruth get married, and and, and this is where it gets really interesting, folks, is that the Scripture says that Boaz took Ruth to be his wife, and they made love to her, and she, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then something strange happens because it switches from Ruth and Boaz to Naomi. And the scripture says, and the women, the same women that Naomi said, don't call me my delight, call me bitter. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. I think the general truism here, folks, is the kingdom people understand that the law was meant to bring life and to promote flourishing. That that's what we're about. We promote human flourishing. We're good neighbors. Why? Not just because we're good neighbors. We're good neighbors because it promotes human flourishing. We, these are the things that, that we do. But what's interesting here is that we often miss this, is that what we find here in chapter 4 is that when Boaz and Ruth conceive and they bear a son, the turn and the aha moment is that the story has never been about Ruth and Boaz. It's been about Elimelech who died in Moab. You see, there's, there's this guy that the story starts with 
whose name literally means God is king. But everything up to this point in his life, he's endured famine. He's had to relocate his family. He's lost sons. He's left his wife and abandoned her. His, his, his wife is completely destitute and on the outside, save for this young Moabite woman who declares that your God will be my God, who loves her as a representation of her love for God, who goes back, who who then now marries the kinsman redeemer and provides a son. And the story turns because it's not about Ruth and Boaz's baby. It's about the fact that Elimelech now has an heir. Now think about it, right? We were talking a little bit earlier. Every 50 years, everything goes back to a hard reset. And the reason for that is that there is no systemic, there is no generational poverty, that inheritance is everything in the kingdom of God. We are not alone. We are not shelved. We are not familyless. And little baby Obed, as Naomi looks into his face, she's not just holding her grandchild. She's holding the one that stands to inherit and re-inherit, something that a woman can't do in this context, to, to inherit all of the rights and privileges of her husband, Elimelech. And then it says, Naomi took the child in her arms, 416, and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. My friends, if we're truly to be kingdom people, our religious rules... And our institutional regulations and our Christian expectations must remove obstacles between people and Jesus. If it doesn't work in the real world, it doesn't work. So here's, here's what I wonder. The worship team can come and they're, they're, they're going to get a song as... As we close and, and, and take our offering. But folks, here, here's, here's what I wonder. I, I wonder if so many of us, and I know that I fall into this all the time, is that, man, I'm a rule keeper. I like rules, right? I like to know what's going on. I like to know my guardrails and all those kinds of things. But man, the minute that keeping the rules causes me to be unloving toward my neighbor, the rules have outlived their usefulness. And I think that Naomi understood this. And, and I think that the scriptures understand this. You see, folks, so often, what, what would it be if we would become a community that, that didn't just look up in the Bible rules and regulations in order to manage our own sin and to, to, to other, other people? But what if we began to apply them to see all of these things are pointing us toward the man named Jesus who came and perfectly embodied these things? You see, Jesus is the truer and better law. Jesus is the truer and better manifestation. Jesus is the truer and better Moses, David, Abram, Boaz. See, Ruth was, was one of the others. She was no one of import. She was single. She was a female in a patriarchal society. She was widowed. All the things that we shelf and put aside and say, nope. But yet when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, she was also the grandmother of the Savior. 
You see, never underestimate what God can do through ordinary people who are totally devoted to Him. Ordinary people like you and like me who will be bent recklessly and relentlessly on loving our neighbor as ourself, on bringing human flourishing. Jesus said to the Pharisees that they traveled over land and sea to make a a, a disciple, and they made twice them, them twice a son of hell as they were. Why? Because they were simply focusing on the law and they weren't focusing on love. May we be a community that transforms this world because we love so relentlessly that people can't help but ask why. Dan? We're going to move back into a time of worship as we give our tithes and offerings. You can do that with the QR code or in the, bu- the bucket in the back. But we're going um, to have a new song to, to teach you guys today. I'm not going to spend time teaching it, but I just want to talk to you a little bit about it before we start singing it. It's pretty, pretty easy to catch on to. Um, it's called Same God. But as Dennis has been going through this series, kind of going through the books of the Bible, and we're hearing a lot of different stories about different characters in the Bible and how God has used them, um, in spite of some of the uh, um, not awesomeness of their character, but God still uses them. And this song kind of uh, takes a lot of those different stories, those characters of Jacob and Moses and Mary and David, and said, God used uh, these people, um, David, you know, being a, a shepherd boy, but he made him courageous. And uh, so this, this song about how God can still use us. He's doing the same things today in us. We may not be like the perfect person to to do God's will in this situation, but he still uses, he wants to use us, so us to be willing to be used by him. So, um, so you guys can just listen a little bit, but I'd like you to join in as you feel comfortable, because this song is pretty repetitive in the music aspect of it, a lot of different words, but um, the music is pretty repetitive, so it's easy to catch on to. So why don't you guys stand with us as we sing Same God. through generations I know that you will keep your covenant I'm calling on the God of Moses the one who opened up the ocean I need you now to do the same thing Oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. How I need you now. Oh rock, oh rock of ages, I'm standing on your faithfulness. On your faithfulness. 
Same God, you were a healer then. 
than your freeing hearts right now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You touched the lepers then. I feel your touch right now. You are the same God. You are the same God. Yes, you are. You never change, God. Stand on the confidence in Jesus. Calling on the Holy Spirit, Almighty River, come and fill me again. Come and fill me again. Yes, come and fill me again. That's kind of the necessary requisite for doing what we've been asked to do. Here's the good news, friends. It's not about you. You can't do it on yourself and neither can I. But when the Spirit invades us and He fills us, there's this supernatural synergy that happens between God and God's people and He empowers us to love folks in an uncommon way. And so as we go from this place, it's my hope that that would be your persistent prayer and that that would be, that we would all recline into that. Holy Spirit, fill me and allow me to be a transforming missional agent for you. He used a, a young foreign widow to shape the course of the history of the whole world. Just imagine what it can do with a bunch of regular old folks who will recklessly and relentlessly love him by loving our neighbors in such a way that they cannot deny he's real. Amen? Dan, we have... So if you got an email from Dan this week, asking you about video and pictures and things like that. Uh, Lindsay, a young photographer, a friend of mine, um, will be in my office and will be there to record uh, something we're going to be doing for the thankfulness service. So for the thankfulness service, we're going together, we're going to eat. Um, Yeah, it's funny, right? The last two times, both of our elders have made drinking jokes. Um, I promise, friends, we're not alcoholics here. Um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, but we will be doing that. But one of the things we would like to do for our, our, um, uh, our tenders online and, and things like that is that we would like to record some of you just answering three simple questions. What are you thankful for? What is your best Thanksgiving memory? And then what are you thankful for about sunrise? Um, and so Lindsay's going to be in my office this week and next week. Uh, what time does she have to be done today? Do you know? She's good today. Next week it's... Okay. So... Um, 
If you got an email about that this week, I want you to be thinking about that and consider. You're like, but, I, you know, I have a face for radio, not for television, right? <laughs> Folks, look at or, this as your paradigm of Or if you didn't get an hope. email and you want to do it anyway, that's, come on back. Yes, that's the second part of this. If you're just like, man, i got some things I'm thankful for because we're going to need several of you to do this. And we're going to, to become, right, this week it's the gentle push, right? Next week we're going to station people at the doors. Um, so, all right. All right, friends, thank you so much. Go in his peace and make a difference in this world this week. You're dismissed.